Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Jimmy Coonan. I'm a member of the Carpenters and Joiners Local 314. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. Hi, I'm Rebecca Meyer-Rao of Worker Justice Wisconsin. Today, we hear about two major Starbucks campaigns, discuss the upcoming moral march to state legislatures with the Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign, learn about a local tenants' rights fight underway, get updates on the state's legislative maps issue, and much more. And if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. Two major campaigns around Starbucks broke this week, and Madison is involved in a big way. Greg Jabowski has more. The national struggle to unionize the Seattle-based multinational coffee giant Starbucks entered a new phase this week as two major initiatives kicked off. In one of these, on Tuesday, Starbucks Workers United announced that the Rimrock and Beltline Starbucks in Madison and the Monona and Broadway Starbucks in Monona have filed petitions with the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, to unionize with them as part of a mass union election filing at 21 Starbucks stores in 14 states all wishing to join Starbucks Workers United. If the union votes are successful, the Rimrock and Monona stores will be the third and fourth unionized Starbucks stores in the Madison area, joining the State Street store by the UW-Madison campus and the Main Street store in Capitol Square. Evan McKenzie, a Starbucks worker at the Main Street store and a member of Starbucks Workers United, spoke yesterday to Labor Radio about the significance of these filings. This is the largest mass filing day in Starbucks Workers United history. No other day in the entire history of this campaign, it's, it's now a two-and-a-half, three-year campaign, has had this many filings. So it's a really historic day. And I think it's also really important because Madison is doubling its union presence just in a single day in terms of unionized stores. And we fully expect these two stores to win their elections when those elections happen in the next few months. So a really, really historic day. In November, the South Central Federation of Labor, or SCUFL, joined with community members to get the word out to Madison area Starbucks stores of the right to unionize. Two of these were the Rimrock and Monona stores. Labor Radio asked McKenzie if that campaign may have helped with the recent union filings there. For Madison labor people, I think that this event where we have these two stores filing as well as other stores in the areas in the process of discussing filing, these campaigns where members of the community, labor-friendly members of the community, went to these stores all across the city and the area you know, that campaign had a direct influence on the filings we're seeing today. And, and a lot of the time, the issue is that these workers just don't have any information, any real information about how to unionize, like what to do when the workplace is unsustainable. That campaign back when we did it in November absolutely was directly influential in this filing event. That was the community going out. And yesterday, another campaign kicked off. 
Students Against Starbucks, sponsored by the UW-Madison Young Democratic Socialists of America, the Madison Chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, Madison Students for Justice in Palestine, and other groups, joined 24 other campuses across the country demanding that their universities end campus licensing agreements with Starbucks Corporation. Simon Hardy, one of the organizers of Students Against Starbucks and the co-chair of the Labor Committee of Madison YDSA, spoke yesterday to Labor Radio about the campaign. Our campaign is specifically focused towards the university. We're trying to get the university to cut its contract with Starbucks. It's a licensing agreement. Essentially, Starbucks is profiting off of our tuition money via the university, essentially just because they're a large coffee supplier and that they have a recognizable brand name. And we think that doesn't need to be the case. Starbucks has been found guilty of and accused of over 300 labor rights violations over the past two years. And they've also refused to actually come to the negotiating table and cut a contract with them. UW Starbucks workers are not Starbucks employees and are barred from unionizing under Wisconsin's Act 10 covering public sector workers. Gabo Ochoa Sawaf, a UW sophomore, co-chair of the UW-YDSA, and a Students Against Starbucks organizer, explained the special role of UW and its Starbucks locations. Really specifically here, we have two stores just down the street that just unionized. And it's really unfair to the workers at this at the store on campus that they cannot organize with their peers at the other stores. The difference is they're not actually Starbucks employees. They're university employees doing Starbucks work and making money for Starbucks. They're paid less than their peers at the stores in town. And furthermore, the university is rewarding a company that is committing massive labor law violations to this very moment. Mackenzie sees these campaigns as a sign of something special. This week, I think, is going to be a turning point. At least I hope so. It feels very different to me when we have 21 stores filing all at once. And then just a couple days later, the Students Against Starbucks campaign launching across over a dozen universities across the U.S., including here in Madison with the largest university, UW-Madison, participating in that campaign. I think that that rush of energy is going to definitely cause some risks within not only upper management and the corporate staff at Starbucks, but also with shareholders. That was Evan McKenzie, a Madison Starbucks worker and a member of Starbucks Workers United. This week, two Madison area stores filed for union elections and students at UW are demanding the university's contract with Starbucks be rescinded, both as part of national campaigns. And Starbucks workers keep winning on the legal front. Just yesterday, a Southern California branch of the NLRB ruled that Starbucks violated the rights of Jesse De La Cruz, a pro-union employee at the company's Little Tokyo store in Los Angeles, by, among other things, telling De La Cruz that the store would be shut down if a union was voted in, later retaliating against De La Cruz. However, Starbucks has still given no indication that it will submit to the law. In fact, last Friday, it took the legal equivalent of going nuclear. It joined three other corporations in a suit directed at the U.S. Supreme Court that would overturn the almost 90-year-old National Labor Relations Act, the NLRA, New Deal legislation that underpins almost the entire body of labor law in the United States of America. The four corporations attempting to overturn the NLRA, Starbucks, Amazon, SpaceX, and Trader Joe's, all recent darlings of the business press and the Democratic Party as examples of progressive corporate capitalism, if successful, would effectively wipe out at the national level an American workers' internationally recognized right to unionize. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. Starting early in February, an inflatable rat met passersby on University Avenue near Lake Street. Frank M. Speck has the story. 
On February 7th, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 139, began picketing the job site at 415 North Lake Street. The parking ramp is being torn down and would be replaced by a bus terminal, stores, and apartments. The city contracted with the Stevens Corporation to do the job, but like most big construction jobs, parts of it are contracted out to others. In this case, the work done by Operating Engineers has been contracted to the Brandt Corporation. Operating Engineers operate heavy equipment and are directing the tower cranes that one sees throughout Madison. Labor Radio spoke with Mike Irvin, organizing director of Local 139, and asked him to describe the issue. We are picketing H.M. Brandt LLC for failing to pay standard wages and benefits. So our picket signs read that H.M. Brandt is paying substandard wages and benefits. So in short, we're out there because they're not paying these operators fair wages and benefits to do the dangerous type of work that they're doing, thus undermining the industry and taking work away from contractors who do bid it with fair fair wages and benefits. Can you give an example of the standards in question? The total package is probably a little above $70 per hour. The wage for doing the kind of work that they're doing is, I think it's $43.23, about. It's $43 and change. And the workers aren't even getting the wage, let alone the benefits. And in the construction industry, while the hourly figure seems high in the unionized sector, part of that money goes to a jointly administered union and company trust fund, which pays for medical, vacation, and retirement. Is the IUOE asking the contractor to join the fund? We're not asking for them to join with us and pay in our funds. We're asking them to pay their workers the total package, which is the fair standard rate. So if they don't give their employees benefits, then they should be paid around $70 plus an hour on the check. If they have benefits, then that would drop accordingly. But the total package that they're supposed to be paying in the industry is around 73 or so dollars an hour, and they're not paying that. What can be done to solve the problem? Very easy. Take care of the workers and pay them. They deserve better. Is there a role here for the city council or other groups? This is a public project, is it not? Yeah, I, yeah, I believe so. Yes, it's a city project. Yeah, I, the way I look at it, it'd be nice if the common council, the city, whoever, the powers that be, would make sure that when they let work out, that these contractors are going to pay the fair standard wages and benefits. And they obviously are not doing that. That's the reason why we're there. What can our listeners do to support the union's efforts to maintain standards? They could come by. We have handbills that describe everything. And we're asking anybody that comes by to get on social media, just put our word out there, help spread our word, support us and support those workers more than anything. We want them to spread the word that those workers deserve better. Thanks to Mike Irvin, Organizing Director of the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 139, describing the picket on University City Avenue. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. A longtime printing plant on Madison's east side will shut down in June, and 116 employees will be out of their jobs. Labor Radio Carol Widell has the details. 
The Eastside Printing Plant, called Sheridan, Wisconsin, on Fordham Avenue, will stop manufacturing in June. In a notice to the Wisconsin Department of Workforce Development, the printing plant, formerly known as Webcrafters, described the actions that will affect the separated employees. The operation will permanently close the facility and 116 employees will lose their jobs. The company expects to eliminate positions starting April 13th and continue in phases until complete closure on June 28th. The company will ensure that employees be paid earned wages and agreed upon benefits at the time of their termination. The printing facility operated for more than 150 years. At its start, the company was called Democrat Printing. In 1927, Walter Frouchy joined the company. Later, his sons John and Jerry joined the company and renamed it to Webcrafters. At its peak, there were 750 employees at the plant, and Webcrafters ranked 81 on the top 400 list of printing impressions. A Sheridan representative said that although this plan is closing, printing will never go away. At the start of the pandemic, digital reading became more popular. Many publishers were overstocked. Education materials are increasingly digital. The Sheridan spokesperson said that these printing trends are cyclical. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. We have new legislative maps in Wisconsin. Labor Radio reporter Janine Ramsey has the story. Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers signed the state legislative maps that he had submitted to the state Supreme Court into law on Monday, February 19th, after the legislature passed those same maps without alterations last week. It was a pivotal moment. Wisconsinites want fair maps, and Wisconsinites deserve fair maps. So today, Wisconsinites, I'm enacting fair maps for the great state of Wisconsin. People instrumental in getting fair maps to the finish line after years of activism were there to witness the signing and relish this hard-fought victory. Carlene Beshen, key activist for the fight for fair maps in Wisconsin, had this to say about what went into this struggle. Everything from county board resolutions and countywide advisory referendums to letters to the editor, rallies, all kinds of grassroots activism as well as pushing at the legislative level for redistricting reform legislation and the list goes on and on, raising awareness. Regular elections for state senators and assembly members will take place in November. When asked about special elections, including Lena Taylor's Senate seat in Milwaukee and Robin Boss's potential seat were he to be recalled, here is what Evers had to say. We have a vacancy now and we have to have it filled and that vacancy may cause another vacancy and that may, so we have to get that figured out and the Supreme Court should be able to help us with that. The signing has happened and we are here with Hat Ray's President, SCIU Wisconsin. What are some examples of concerns to workers that might pass with better maps? Minimum wage, better working conditions, safer working conditions. What does it mean to have more competitive seats? It means the politicians have to listen to the people and they're going to be accountable to the people when they choose not to listen to them. 
For many in attendance, this was a crucial step toward fairer representation in our state. The focus is already shifting to new congressional maps and ultimately a nonpartisan map drawing process enshrined in our state constitution. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio interviewed Megan Lulio about the upcoming Moral March to the State House Assembly scheduled for March 2nd. She's co-director of the Dane County chapter of the Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign. Poor People's Campaign is organizing a Moral March to State House Assemblies in 31 states. When is that scheduled for Madison? In Madison, it's Saturday, March 2nd. We'll be gathering at 1030 in the morning at the State Street Capitol Steps. And at 11, we'll march around the Capitol, ending again at State Street. And what will follow the march? Following the march, we'll have an assembly at First United Methodist Church at 203 Wisconsin Avenue. And during the assembly that begins at noon, we'll hear from folks that are impacted by the interlocking injustices in this country and who are mobilizing to demand an end to poverty. We'll hear from campaign leaders and faith leaders, and we will sing together. There will be childcare available and lunch following the program. What are the goals of the march? The march is a simultaneous day of direct action at state houses across the country. We aim to bring together thousands of poor and low wealth people and their allies to demand a moral agenda from our lawmakers at the state level. And it will happen in more than 30 states across the country. A moral agenda means living wages, voting rights, health care, fully funded public education, a healthy environment, clean water, affordable and decent housing, an end to the war economy, militarism and genocide, and an end to poverty. And I understand you're trying to register voters as well. Yes, it is also a mobilization towards elections this year and ongoing. We know we're in for the long haul. Who is invited to the march? We're inviting everyone who believes that our country has all the resources we need to fully address these challenges and that we can change the narrative. We're building this moral fusion movement across lines of division that have been used against us in the past. So we're calling for folks, urban and rural, of all races, genders, all faith traditions, impacted and marginalized folks and their allies. We are a nonpartisan, nonviolent movement, and we want you to join us on March 2nd at the State House and in November at the polls. So, even though it's called a poor people's campaign, you don't have to be poor to participate. Definitely not. You don't have to consider yourself poor to be part of it. We're lifting up the voices of people who have been impacted and are living in poverty, but we welcome all allies. We all need to come together to create a movement big enough to change. And how can people find more information? So they can go to the website, which is poorpeoplescampaign.org. They can also email directly to wisconsin at poorpeoplescampaign.org. You can follow our campaign on social media platforms, or the quickest way is to text the word moral to 32846 to get connected. I understand that representatives of the Poor People's Campaign actually met with legislators. Is that correct? We did, yes. We were meeting with legislators on both sides of the aisle 
to tell them about our event, our plans, this initiation of more than 40 weeks of mobilization towards the elections in November and sort of introduce them to our demands for a moral agenda and uh, legislative moves in that direction. That was Keith Steffens interviewing Megan Barry Lulio about the Poor People's Action at the State Capitol starting at 11 a.m. Saturday, March 2nd. Tenants at the Royal Arms Apartments in Madison were recently notified of steep rent increases. In response, tenants invited new building owner Les Oroz of Oroz Properties to a meeting on Tuesday night to talk about the increases and other issues. Labor Radio spoke to David Rivera Cor, one of the tenants and the organizer of the tenants' efforts for more fair treatment at the apartment complex. Could you tell us what's been going on? Last year, our previous landlord, Randy Deal, who had been managing the property for several decades, passed away. Randy was a pretty good-natured landlord. He genuinely cared about his tenants and poured his life into the property. The property got scooped up by a real estate company called Arose Properties. And since they took over, they have had much more of an attitude of indifference when dealing with tenants. Even before we got these new lease renewal offers, Tenants were noticing issues with communication from management, not being let in the loop on what was going on around the property, poor responsiveness to maintenance requests, poor quality of maintenance. So there were some problems even before these new leases. And then we got these new leases. And the leases were a 20 to 40% increase from before, which was the single largest increase in the property's history. Not only that, but there was a two-week renewal deadline. So we essentially had two weeks to decide, can we bear this financial burden or do we have to move? There are a lot of people here who have kids enrolled in school who would have to transfer schools if they move. We have a lot of elderly tenants who have lived here for decades, who have friends here. A lot of people were trapped into accepting a new lease, even though they can't really afford it. And the two-week deadline placed additional pressure on them to make a decision right away. Can you tell us about the apartments? It used to be called Karen Arms Apartments. After a rose took over, it's now called Royal Arms. It's between the Hilldale Mall and Rennebaum Park. And we have 11 two-story buildings in the complex. They were built in 1960. How many people live there? I'm going to guess a little over 300 people. The owner agreed to meet with some of the tenants last night. Can you tell us what happened? At the meeting, 50 to 60 tenants showed up. So it was them and Les, the owner, and his management team. The tangible outcome of the meeting was that Les said that he and his managers would reevaluate the terms of the lease. 
and let us know within 48 hours what their decisions are. He did give us his word that the renewal deadline would at least be extended. We didn't get a commitment to reducing rent and fees. When did you get these notices and when did you decide to start organizing? Right at the beginning of February. Once I heard my 75-year-old neighbor say that I can't afford this, but I'm stuck, that pushed me into action. Buildings are going up left and right all over the city. One of the reasons is because we need housing, especially affordable housing. It would seem like the city would have an interest in maintaining any affordable housing that is existing. What's your response to that? It seems like that isn't the case. I know that there are people in the city council who are definitely sympathetic, but I think at the local level, they're hamstrung by the state. The state doesn't have very many protections for tenants at all. The state is very pro-landlord, and I think that limits the city's ability to interfere. That was David rivera Cor. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Madison Labor Radio. Frederick Douglass is well known for his slavery and abolition work and civil rights activism. His involvement with the labor union was brief and is not widely known. Keith Steffens has a short biography of Douglass in honor of Black History Month. Frederick Douglass was born a slave in 1818 in Maryland. Separated from his mother in infancy, she died when he was seven. He escaped to New York in 1838. He became a nationally known advocate for the abolition of slavery, desegregated public education, and voting rights for women, African Americans, and indigenous people. He spoke widely in the United States, Great Britain, Ireland, and Europe. He also published newspapers. In 1872, he was elected president of a union known as the Colored National Labor Union. In 1869, several black delegates had been invited to the annual meeting of the National Labor Union, including Isaac Myers. The National Labor Union, or NLU, was the first national labor federation in the U.S. It was formed in 1866 and dissolved in 1873. At the 1869 convention, Myers spoke for solidarity among white and black workers organizing together for higher wages and a comfortable standard of living. However, the white unions refused to allow African Americans to join. In response, Myers and other African American laborers formed a national union of their own, also called the National Labor Union, with Myers as its first president. The word colored was added to the name, apparently by the public media of the time, so it became known as the Colored National Labor Union, or CNLU. The black workers held their own convention later that year for the first nationwide African-American labor union. The goals of the CNLU, which represented African-American laborers in 21 states, included farmland for poor African-Americans in the South, government aid for education, and legislation opposing racial discrimination. Frederick Douglass was selected to be the president of the CNLU in 1872. Douglass' new newspaper called The New Era became the official organ of this national labor union. The CNLU became increasingly political, resulting in less trade union activity and less contact with other trade unions. By 1872, the CNLU had become increasingly identified with the Republican Party, ceased most of its operations, and eventually disbanded, as the original National Labor Union had when they were designated a political party. 
Frederick Douglass continued his civil rights activism. He held politically appointed offices, including U.S. Marshal for the District of Columbia, Recorder of Deeds for the District of Columbia, and U.S. Minister and Consul General to the Republic of Haiti. Douglass wrote three autobiographies, the last one being Life and Times of Frederick Douglass. A number of biographies have been written about him. I'm Keith Steffen reporting for Labor Radio. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Jimmy Coonan. Thanks to the editor, Frank Emsbach, assistant, Robin G., copy editor, Simon Gordon, reporters, Greg Jabowski, Janine Ramsey, Carol Wydell, and damage control specialist, Joanne Powers. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reading coordinator, engagement editor, Alice Herman, and to all of our readers and the members of the IBEW local 2304 WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Rebecca Meyer Rao. We would also like to thank all of the generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts and the Professor Bill Clark. <laughs>